Okay, our goal is to start at 7 o'clock, and I know that's a, a learning curve for uh, for some folks, uh, but we'll go ahead and start we're starting at 5 after tonight just as a reprieve for, uh, for, for some of you. Uh, we'll be starting at 7 o'clock, though, routinely, and so we'll plan on doing that next starting next week and continuing the rest of the semester. Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, if we can. And uh, let me see, Pete, could I ask you to open us? Sure, sure. Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for uh, bringing us together to uh, learn more about the Holy Spirit. And uh, we ask that you would uh, help us to uh, recall what we we, uh, learned last week and uh, have attentive minds for what we're about to learn this week. Uh, We ask for your grace and help in this endeavor. Okay, so while we wait for a few more bodies to come in, let's do a little bit of review, and then we'll uh, uh, make a few general announcements and move into uh, the uh, some new material tonight. So I don't have actually a quiz for you. I know you're all disappointed, but I thought for the first week we could uh, see if we can't uh, just sort of make it an oral kind of review here. So we, we started... After we introduced the uh, class and the, uh, some, some bibliographic stuff, we started into a history of pneumatology, a history of the teaching about the Holy Spirit in the church. And so let me, let me ask you, what are some of the early tensions, early problems that began to emerge as time unfolds here in the early church? Okay, so what do you mean by that? God is three forms, not Okay, so there's one God, and he effectively shows up in three different ways. So modalism was there. And then the opposite was, was what? What's the opposite of that? Where you basically have God being, talk about spirit being created. Yeah, yeah. What, what's that? What was that called? Well, what's it called for, for Christ, Christology? Uh, different different that's, issues there. Yeah. That's yeah. Where they but what, what's the idea that God created the Son? Arianism. Arianism. Okay. And so, what is it when God the Father created the Holy Spirit as a subordinate person? Yes. Yes. Macedonianism. So yes, you got that right. So that that was some 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 early. Problems. What are some other things that we encounter early on in the history of the church? Holy Spirit's supporting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We sort of hit both of those those elements there. What are some of the other isms that we? Gnosticism. Gnosticism. What's that? Well, that's where they have special knowledge, uh, and there's like a group together, and they get special information. Right, so special knowledge immediately from God, usually mediated through the Spirit, or sometimes special power uh, that is mediated through the Holy Spirit. That is that is the property strictly of people who have a sort of a higher knowledge, a deeper knowledge, and so there's there's this uh, this idea, of this, the whole idea of Gnosticism is that I have a knowledge that you don't have. So there's these sort of a a, a, a ranking within the church, and of course that uh, re- reflects then in sanctification. 
how do you get sanctified? Well, you sort of take these steps necessary to take you from being uh, a, a natural man to a to, to a to a to a converted but sort of flatline man, and then sort of move up from there to a to a, a, a soulish man, to a spiritual man, to a true Gnostic. That is one sort of who's advanced beyond uh, beyond others. And closely related to Gnosticism was another ism, mysticism, which is what? Yeah, information directly, propositional information directly and immediately from God without any intermediate source. So the Bible can be bypassed. Okay, so the, and we still have this, it's alive and well today, right? It's just because it doesn't perhaps come by the, in the, quite the same forms and by the same names as we at one time saw. Uh, we still have this very much alive and well, the idea that God told me I had a burden from God, uh, and uh, I was led. And the the idea here is that you get some specific guidance, specific information from God. It's private. It's only to you, unverifiable. And in some ways, it, it's parallel or it is equal in authority what the Bible says. And sometimes, for some, it's, it's in of greater authority. Okay. What else did we see emerging in the early church? Okay, so we have the Filioque controversy, which we said really wasn't much of a theological controversy. It really was, it, it ended up being the catalyst for the splitting of the church. Um, and it really, it, it, we, we suggest that it probably has little by way of theological significance. Uh, it was really just a power struggle, but yes, it was certainly it was a dominant event that took place in the, in the early church. A couple more I'm looking for. Chrismations. Aha, chrismations, which develop ultimately into what? Rites. Yeah. So the, the rites, the, the the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, and they all seem to be somewhat loosely related to uh, special endowments of the Holy Spirit, okay? And one sort of, one that I'm sort of still waiting for here. Uh, developing forms, you know, probably speaking anachronistically here, of, of Pentecostal kinds of thinking, uh, where you have... have uh, you, have, you have separate baptisms of the Holy Spirit, uh, which result then in iterations of power, uh, uh, some sort of a supernatural power uh, that results in, say speaking, in tongues, enthusiasms, miracles, healings, and such, uh, which emerge. So early forms of, if I can call it continuationism, if we can take the modern debate and set it back in the in the uh, in the in, er, into earlier days, okay. So that brings us then to page 8, where we're going to have some new material here. And we'll look at the modern period. But before I do that, I want to make sure uh, we just, I want to make sure everybody was here before I made a few general announcements. One, does everybody have a set of notes? So anybody who didn't receive a set of notes that don't have them tonight, uh, we've got a copy here in the back. Now, if you've got a set and you left it home, Shame on you, but uh, <laughs> but uh, 
if you didn't get a set, like we've got notes for you. Also, if you paid for your book, this, I, I, I was told exactly how to say this. So, if you paid for the book, the textbook, and you didn't get it, there's several copies up there. But if you have not yet paid for it, you need to go to the resource center and pay for it there. I've been told by Dr. Combs that it's the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if you take one of those copies here. So, um, but that's that's. Did I give the announcement? Well, he's not even paying attention, so <laughs> he doesn't even know we're talking about it. Okay, so here we are on page eight, then in our notes, as uh, and as we as we sort of do a, a rush through some of the history of pneumatology, uh, we come to the modern period. And when I say the modern period, don't think you know contemporary. Uh, the modern period in philosophical and theological circles starts uh, with the Enlightenment, with the Reformation. Uh, so uh, we're 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 talking 500 years ago, and we still call it the modern period. That's why we have postmodernism, which actually seems oxymoronic to us. But uh, uh, we're talking about the modern period, which runs from about about 1500 into uh, the early to mid 20th century. I say here the major reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, were instrumental in undoing some of the problems. <coughs> that had been introduced in Roman Catholicism, but they didn't all do it the same way or to the same degree. Uh, I can recognize, of course, that's one of the issues with Protestantism. There is no centralized authority. You end up with branches of Protestantism. You've got the Reformed branch, the Lutheran branch, the Anglican branch, and some will throw in a fourth branch, which would be the Anabaptists or radical reformers. And we find that they don't all come at these problems of pneumatology in exactly the same way. The idea of baptismal regeneration was expunged, especially in the Reformed branch of the Reformation. Although there's probably vestiges of that that lingered in Lutheranism even to the present day, and some of you perhaps could speak to that even more uh, clearly than I could. Anglicanism as well, and perhaps might be inferred from infant baptism as practiced in the Reformed community. So there were still a little bit of confusion, I think, in the expression and the practice of baptism, but for the most part, uh, there was a realization that baptism could not of itself save. Confirmation was eliminated as a function of the Spirit, as a separate function of the Spirit. And so the two-tiered approach to the Christian life went largely into abeyance. Now, that doesn't, that's not to say that there isn't a, a form of confirmation that occurs, say, within Presbyterian life and elsewhere, but it was, it was, it was divorced from this idea here where you could have a special endowment of grace uh, when, you, when you reach the age of confirmation. Confirmation effectively then became for the Presbyterian uh, the, uh, the 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 expectation that a child who was baptized into the community of faith would have to at some point affirm that faith on his own without the assistance or the uh, prompting of his parents and uh, could be brought into the fold by a by a profession of faith uh, and otherwise be sort of weeded out then of the uh, 
community of faith. Uh, but it, it really was was moved away from this idea of a means of grace, a sacrament that we see in Roman Catholicism. Martin Luther followed Augustine in regarding tongues as having ceased. So while they're, you know, some, sometimes uh, those of us who are opposed to the idea of continuing tongues today sometimes overstate the idea that there were no, there was no practice of miracles and tongues in the middle Middle Ages and such. There, there was, uh, but generally took place in the fringes. And the same thing was true of the uh, of the Protest uh, the, the Reform, Reformation period. Uh, the 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 one place where we see expressions of this is in the Radical Reformation, which is sort of the the un, the, the unraveled edges of Protestantism, uh, where he sometimes saw that. But Martin Luther followed Augustine in regarding tongues as having ceased in his typically strident way of speaking. He says they are strictly a sign for the early Jewish church and rejected all but inner miracles. So the only miracles that we see the Holy Spirit doing are miracles of regeneration, for instance. And chalked up outer miracles to either simple providence or trickery. He also opposed sharply a group of people there in Germany called the Schwarmer. This is probably a term that would translate into English as the enthusiasts. So if you're trying to think of a continuity between an English term uh, within history, that's probably what you have here. The Schwarmer. It's an assortment of self-proclaimed prophets who claim direct revelation, such as Thomas Munzer, the Zwickau Brethren, and von Karlstadt. These are some of his sparring partners, and you can read about these in his collected works and such. And he really went to war, went to battle with these who claimed some sort of special immediate revelation from God uh, that was parallel to or perhaps even trumping what the scriptures had to say. Luther heaped vitriol on these kinds of people, going so far as calling them deceiving agents of Satan. So you never were at a loss for knowing right exactly where Martin Luther stood, uh, good or bad. He was, he was very clear with that. John Calvin was also critical of, I say present day, in his day, tongues and miracles. He regarded these gifts as long vanished and described their practice as foolish, false delusions of Satan. So he sound, he waxes almost Lutheran there in his words. Calvin's reasoning for this understanding was a little bit more careful uh, in, than, than Luther's work. The miraculous gifts, he said, have ceased so that the preaching of the word might be made more marvelous forever, being freed from the distractions of the supernatural, which far too often was laced with personal ambition. He did allow, however, for a heightened ministry of the Spirit that might attend the preacher in his preaching. We're going to talk about this as uh, in, in the modern days, and I'm going to call it a homiletical anointing. And there are there are some, particularly within the within the Presbyterian light, uh, speak of a the availability of a special sort of pastoral power or preaching power. Um, uh, as you can sort of tell by my tone, I've, I've, I've got some 
I've got some hesitations about it, but this is this is where it starts. Yes. Where were these these so-called gifts during well before the Reformation? Was the camp was going on in Um Yeah, like I say, it's sort of in the fringes. It, 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 it was in the fringes of Catholicism. It wasn't mainstream. It was in the fringes of, of Protestantism. It, it really was never mainstreamed in any of those traditions. Okay, so for Calvin, there was a homiletical power that could be gotten. You could get into the pulpit. Sometimes you had it, sometimes you didn't. You get up there, and sometimes you're just speaking ordinary words, but sometimes you had power. But he said it, it's, it's, it's limited to power, never content. This seems to be a critical point for Calvin and also for Luther. There was a sense in which he, they could live with the idea of spiritual power, but not revelation. Okay, uh, The content of the sermon was derivative. Okay, The preacher would get it from the scriptures. He could not come up with new data that was authoritative as scripture. His authority was strictly derivative. Um, and so the content was never immediately from the Holy Spirit, even though the, the sermon might be attended with power. This ministry, could, I said here, could be requested and sought, but never secured by any formula. You never really knew when the Holy Spirit would visit you in the pulpit. Calvin also recognized two operations of the Holy Spirit with respect to the believer, one that established the mind, which is warrant, and one that illumined the mind. And he's not always completely consistent in what he says here, uh, but uh, the, the ideas of illumination and the internal testimony of the Spirit sort of emerge here. Uh, so the internal testimony of the Spirit, uh, he would tie with 1 John 2.27, you have an unction or a, an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and you know the idea was that the Holy Spirit uh, makes, him, makes his revelation recognizable uh, to the believer. So, and he, he uses this sort of as his explanation as to how, for instance, we came up with the canon of Scripture. Uh, because obviously you don't have a Bible verse that you can appeal to to say these are the 27 books of the New Testament. So how do we know we have the right ones? Well, Calvin said it's the, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit why, whereby we are made able to recognize the voice of God and then the the combined witness of the whole church in that regard uh, gives us our canon. So that is the warrant for him, the warrant for uh, establishing the mind. And then also illumination, uh, which uh, we're going to talk about at some length in here. The idea that the Holy Spirit attends the mind of the believer and makes him uh, willing to hear, to listen, to submit, to welcome the things of the Spirit of God. So he has these two aspects of the Holy Spirit, which I think are a good advance on what we understand about the Holy Spirit. Holdrake Zwingli is perhaps the most loose of the major reformers, and perhaps the least major of the reformers here that we're looking at. Of all the major reformers, Zwingli distinguished most sharply between the Spirit's Old Testament and New Testament ministries. So for him, 
The Pentecostal gifts were not merely transitional, but could possibly be seen today. Now, he downplayed such uh, the the contemporary practice of these gifts severely, um, but most significantly, he argued that the word had no value apart from spirit, explicitly locating the meaning of the scriptures, not in the text, but in the spirit's attendant impartation of interpretive understanding. So... We can, if we, can, if we can put it this way, he's sort of a precursor uh, to, to the modern Karl Barth, uh, where uh, when, when, when you read the scriptures, God not only causes you to recognize the voice of God, the internal testimony of the Spirit, and to submit, and welcome, submit to and welcome the scriptures, which is illumination, but for Zwingli, God would actually give meaning uh, that that you could not, you couldn't fathom. You you would you would look at the scriptures two, ten times and say, I don't I don't I don't understand what that means. And then the Holy Spirit would sort of visit your mind and give you the meaning of the text. Okay, so he takes takes Calvin a step further in that, and I think perhaps a step too far. We'll talk about that again. We'll talk about all of these ideas. Uh, as we as we work through it, I'm just sort of setting the uh, historical table here. High Church Anglicanism, sometimes called Laudian uh, Anglicanism, which I, I, by by this I, I want to distinguish between the High Church, the the, very, the highly liturgical uh, approach, um, and and also the uh, the very uh, authoritative authority centric kind of approach to Anglicanism. Uh, that was was seemed to be constantly at war with low church Anglicanism, which is much more democratic uh, um, kind of Anglicanism from which Wesleyanism emerges. Okay, so high church Anglicanism, with its quest for centralized authority, apart from Rome. Remember the history of Anglicanism uh, starts effectively as Roman Catholicism, but because of intrigue with the throne, right, Henry VIII, actually he takes the Church of England out of the Roman Catholic Church so that he could get the divorce he wanted, and so we end up with a separate uh, church, uh, but it's happening right around the same time as the uh, Protestant Reformation, and so the Anglican Church ends up with a, with a, with a much more Protestant flavor uh, than, than the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, if you look at the 39 Articles... Uh, by which Anglicanism is governed, you'll, I think you'll you'll resonate with a lot of what you read. It's actually uh, fairly fairly well well conceived. Nonetheless, one thing they retained was this top down authority uh, that was that's reminiscent of of Rome. Of course, Rome has a pope and an archbishops and then bishops and, and so on and so forth. Well, you have the same kind of thing in Anglicanism. You don't have a single head. Uh, although the Archbishop of Canterbury is awfully important in in the church. Uh, So they do have a little bit of dispersed authority, but the structure is largely the same. In fact, in some ways, it's even more complicated. I don't know if you've watched Downton Abbey or some of these. You you find all these titles of of these religious figures, and what... What's a rector? <laughs> you know, so all these, all these names. So it's, it's so there's there's this idea of a very centralized authority. But of course, they didn't want to have the same centralized authority as Rome, 
And so what ends up happening is they make appeals to Eastern Orthodoxy. And so there's sort of a, 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 a conduit here from Eastern Orthodoxy into Anglicanism such that when you look at Anglicanism, you see a lot of features of 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 of, of that uh, of that Eastern Orthodoxy, and that that then filters down into Wesleyanism. Some of these things include here mysticism, really big in the Eastern Church, theosis. There's a term that I not introduced here: the idea that uh, when you get saved, you actually become one with God. And we speak of union with Christ, but we don't we don't understand that to mean somehow we share identity that we become God. Uh, but in Eastern Orthodoxy, that this this is an idea that's out there. There's this there's this you can you can be swallowed up in God, and so that so that God actually sort of takes over you, and you can be perfected. So you can see where this Wesleyan perfectionism is going to emerge from. Okay, this idea that we can become so absorbed in God that God actually acts on our behalf. Uh, and so, so some of that emerges here. It sort of, it, it comes from Eastern Orthodoxy into Anglicanism and thence into uh, to Wesleyanism. And also then the latter model of sanctification, which we introduced last time. So these are elements largely unknown in the other two branches of Reformed thought. So uh, for the most part, Lutheranism and Reformed theology uh, don't have too much by way of problems with sanctification or with uh, or, or or with uh, continuationist kinds of things, uh, but but here in Methodism, derived from Anglicanism, we find this. Okay, so you can sort of see where Wesleyanism comes from. Okay, so I say though that these ideas remain generally in the periphery until Wesley comes along. And some figures here. That, that are included in Laudian or High Church Anglicanism are William Beveridge, Lancelot Andrews, William Law, and Jeremy Taylor. And I throw these names out at you because their works are still being published today and often celebrated as great works of piety. And if I can, if I can say that they're, they're not so great works of piety. Okay, they've... They've 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 actually got quite some misunderstandings of the Holy Spirit. So just that's sort of a word to the wise there. If you see those names, and perhaps you have one of these books on on a shelf somewhere or uh, downloaded onto your Kindle, uh, you might want to just be aware of that. So radical Reformation then, radical Reformation. This is on especially on the continent tended to remain more open to Roman Catholic themes that had been rejected by the mainstream Protestants. They also preserved a strong undercurrent of existential and pietistic fascination with the miraculous and the revelatory, often connected with a heightened eschatological interest. So they're very much interest in end times. There's a sort of a fascination they had with end times, and also with this idea of pietism. In fact, many of the, the, this this group is collectively known sometimes as the Continental Pietists. Okay, uh, some names here that might you know, might uh, resonate with you or not: uh, Thomas Hunzer, Kaspar Schwenkfeld of the Schwenkfelders. 
Uh, they were they're, they're sort of a big uh, group in Pennsylvania where I grew up. So there were Schwenkfelder churches here and there. Balfathers are Hubmeyer, Jacob Hutter, heard of the Hutterites, and John Towler. These, this pietistic strand would later invade Lutheranism in Germany by such figures as Johann Arndt, Philip Spener, and August Franke. One particular strand of these is well known in our circles, and that's the Moravians. Uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, probably, uh, I was going to say, probably have some songs by him in your hymn book, but I guess we don't use hymn books anymore, right? Uh, but uh, there's there's a number of, uh, he's, he's thought of fairly highly within uh, conservative life. He was instrumental in bringing this emphasis to the English-speaking world through, again, the Wesleys. Of course, Wesley, uh, I will tell the story later, I guess, more in more detail. Of course, Wesley uh, grew up in an Anglican home, but had not been converted, goes on a, uh, on a, on a mission to Georgia, doesn't find it compelling. So he's coming back. He's not really convinced that uh, the Christian faith is for him. They have this massive storm at sea, and... Uh, they thought the ship, ship was going down and everyone's all in a panic except for these this group of Moravians in the corner who were quite peaceful uh, at peace with whatever God should do and it's just stuck with him when he goes cuts back into to England arrives uh, he is uh, going along and he, he comes along, along uh, stumbles on one of these churches and, and walks in and he finds his his heart strangely warmed as he listens to the preaching, this is, he understands this to be his, uh, his, his conversion experience. But this influence of the Moravians was very, uh, very important to him. And these Moravians are part of this very pietistic strand of theology. If we can go into England now, English Puritanism represents a departure from Anglicanism. Of course, we recognize in, in England, Anglicanism, the Church of England, that was the dominant uh, representation there. But as as time passes, Puritanism becomes uh, it starts to grow and becomes fairly dominant there. This is heavily influenced by Reformed interests. A lot of these are being hounded out of different parts of Europe, migrating to England, and it starts to, to gain some traction there. Okay, and so heavily influenced by reformed interests that opposed the high church, the 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 the, the power sources of of Anglicanism, they 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 disliked centralized government. They disliked Arminianism, which was somewhat uh, had something of a presence within Anglicanism. And they also uh, uh, um, opposed experimental models of soteriology. For them, being justified was a forensic thing. You declared righteous. You did not become holy and thus commend yourself to God. And so these three elements here are, are, are things that the Puritans disliked about, uh, about, about uh, Anglicanism. And so Puritanism is marked by a tightening of some of these aberrations within Anglicanism with respect to pneumatology. The crowning uh, representative here is John Owen, whose Pneumatologia, 
is a study that remains to this day the most comprehensive work ever written on the Holy Spirit, and by, by which I mean the longest uh, and the most comprehensive. He deals with all areas of, so, uh, of, of, of pneumatology, and as you read it, there are points at which you, you, you wonder if, if he isn't writing in the last ten years uh, because of, of the breadth and uh, insight uh, that he has about this. And so he's critical here of both Romanists, but also quietists and shakers, other enthusiasts, so the Amish and stuff like that, who were advocating for miraculous gifts, and especially revelatory gifts. He's probably the, the first uh, really strong uh, defense of cessationism that we find within the literature. Okay, So there are no miraculous gifts, and particularly no revelatory gifts for him, um, and uh, during during the, the present day. His comprehensive scholarship resulted in these elements remaining in the periphery for many decades. So uh, Puritanism, I, I, I look at it in general as a very positive refining here of some abuses that take place within Anglicanism. Well, let's here get to John Wesley. We've sort of gotten, worked around him, but let's, let's you know, uh, turn our turn our sights our our gun sights against him now. He he represents the intersection of high church Anglicanism and German Pietism. We've already mentioned this. His father was an Anglican, uh, uh, I believe a priest. Um, I might be wrong on that, but his father was was uh, high up in the in the Anglican Church, uh, preached regularly. So he grew up in this in this kind of a setting. But of course, he was influenced heavily by. Uh, by his own admission, by reading the Eastern divines, and then also by these 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 German Pietists. So he's something of a, an interesting combination of theological factors here. Okay, so we have here then an intersection that served to bring ancient and mystical forms of pneumatology out of the edges and put them in the mainstream. So much of it, the abuses that we see today. Uh, in in the realm of pneumatology, come almost entirely through uh, Wesleyanism. Okay, so but he he gives sort of a respectability to it. Specifically, he revived the latter approach to spirituality in the form of a series of Holy Spirit enablements, and I have four of them listed here. You can work through his materials and find this. First, the first enablement, and for him, grace is always enablement. So if there's a grace from God, it always enables you to do something. So for him, prevenient grace was an enablement that makes it possible for you to accept Christ, but doesn't affect the response of faith. Okay, I say technically, Wesley believed in total inability. Okay? He believed that... Uh, 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 by virtue of the fall, all persons were rendered totally incapable of coming to Christ on their own. However, he also affirmed that every person receives this prevenient or enabling grace immediately upon birth, and so this this idea of total depravity sort of is an empty set for him. There's nobody who actually experiences <laughs> total depravity uh, because of this work of prevenient grace. Prevenient simply means going before. Okay, So it's the grace that goes before. And so the idea here is uh, that uh, 
prevenient grace is bestowed universally at birth. And so the totally depraved natural man is really hypothetical. Okay, And so he breaks company here, of course, with the Reformed, who would say up until the point of regeneration, which takes place within time, uh, you are in this category of total depravity. There's a second, then, form of grace in the ladder of graces that uh, is received, convincing grace, which is a spirit convicting that brings further deliverance from the heart of stone that falls short of proper Christian salvation. Uh, I hope I don't wreck a song here for you. Uh, but, uh, but, but the idea of quickening grace is, is included here. So, thine eye diffused, a quickening ray. Uh, we probably redefine that to be regeneration, but that's not what he meant by it. What this quickening grace was, was this further enablement uh, that makes you anxious about your spiritual state. Okay? Okay, so this convincing work further delivers us from the heart of stone, but does fall short of proper Christian salvation. It enables a person to recognize his status as a legal man, someone who is striving to obey God but perpetually failing, and effects then intense strife and labor to be free from sin, but always results in failure and despair. So for him, that's the second step along the way, along the path to salvation. Then, justifying grace is the Spirit's enabling of true righteousness in the believer that is both imputed for him and implanted. So it's declarative and also planted in the individual. This Spirit enablement, secured by an act of faith, empowers the believer to fear God and transforms the legal man into what he calls the evangelical man, whose dutiful striving for holiness becomes increasingly successful, although he still is sometimes subject to bouts of carnality. The last step for uh, for uh, Wesley was sanctifying or perfecting grace, which is the Spirit's transformation of the evangelical man into the perfected evangelical man, in whom, by a simple act of faith, perfect love totally casts out fear, enabling what he calls entire sanctification within the believer's life, lifetime. Okay? And so it's a state in which the believer does not sin, or at least does not knowingly sin. Okay? And so, of course, you're familiar with the idea of Wesleyan perfectionism. You can actually reach the state of perfection before you die, before the second coming of Christ. Okay? And he, he actually argued that Believers usually experience this final grace immediately prior to death, but you had to experience experience it in order to get into heaven. If you fell short here, uh, then you would lose everything uh, that went before. So you lose your salvation ultimately. Okay, so this is this is this 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 Wesleyan approach to salvation has made all sorts of inroads into. American Protestant theology. And perhaps even as we were walking through it, you're saying, I, I thought that was true, <laughs> you know, perhaps along the way. And so we're going to work our way through that. 
I think this is probably going to be probably going to be our biggest whipping boy along the way. So I, my apologies to those of you perhaps who come out of a Wesleyan background and uh, and uh, are are still have some t- some ties and some some warmth uh, towards that. Uh, there is going to be some criticism of Wesley's approach here uh, as we as we work through this course. Okay. Next on the list here is Keswick theology which has even more close ties with uh, conservative American theology and fundamentalism. This makes some adjustments to Wesley. Uh, Both uh, Dr. Combs and I have published on this topic. My dissertation was here, so I have to sort of have to tamp myself down when we talk about this here, but... Okay, so what, what's Keswick theology? Well, the Reformed e- element uh, that, uh, eventually comes along and says, we've got some problems here with Wesley, but rather than deplace, displacing Wesleyanism, they sort of altered it a little bit here. So it eliminated the idea of prevenient grace, so the idea of a grace that goes before, uh, that, that enables all persons uh, to, to come to, to Christ, uh, that's that's done away with within Keswick theology, and there's a very muted expression of Wesleyanism for for Keswick theology. One could you can you can have uh, periods where you are filled up to the full with the Holy Spirit and are practically perfect for a brief time, but then. Uh, if I can use the words of one of their their major theologians, there's a leaking of the spirit, and so and so you would you would sort of fall back from this uh, this uh, this perfection. So perfection comes and goes uh, for the uh, for the Keswick uh, without censure. Okay, the latter model of salvation and sanctification, however, which are reflected in Wesley's natural, legal, evangelical, and perfect man, were simplified into the more familiar categories, perhaps, the natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. Okay? Perfection was, I say here, transmuted to the idea of a higher state of Christian living that could, uh, that wasn't so much the end, the, the, the climax of the believer's life, but could be achieved quickly by the means of a shorter way of laying one's all on the altar at a moment in time, and you could be instantly vaulted to this point of perfection. And uh, uh, and so, what we tend to see in those who still hold to this Keswick idea, uh, they'll there'll be uh, uh, in in the church there'll be there'll be there'll be the spring revival meetings and the fall revival meetings because you need to sort of have your you need you have to have your 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 your, your spiritual up and then you sort of fade away and then in the fall you get another one so you get another charge here of the Holy Spirit's uh, filling and then it sort of fades and and you never really make any progress uh, but it just sort of keeps going on with that pattern and perhaps some of you are familiar with that uh, kind of arrangement too whether or not you've known it by that name by the way that W is silent there Uh, it's one of those British uh, letter drops that uh, we're familiar with. Uh, the combination then, this is uh, I think my last point here, the combination 
of emphasis on eschatology, Pentecost, baptism of the Spirit, led somewhat naturally to the revival of interest in additional Pentecostal themes, resulting in the birth of Pentecostalism, which attributed virtually all of the Spirit's work in the early church to the whole of church history. So everything that the Holy Spirit is doing in the book of Acts, he's doing today. And, in fact, it's going to increase as the end nears. Now, while Keswick theology hastily adapted to avoid some of these excesses, um, the Pentecostal departure could not be reversed, and so Pentecostalism was birthed out of this of this Keswick theology. And so uh, those are sort of the modern-day expressions that we're going to have to uh, encounter and deal with along the way. Questions about the history. I know I, not, not so much questions about the... The, the, the theological in intricacies here, but groups, people, trying to fit them into uh, the uh, the history of theology. Thoughts, questions along along those lines? Yes, sir. So on the um, the Lebanese side of my family, um, they're mostly Syrian Orthodox uh-huh. and Greek Orthodox. Yeah, and so there's a lot of long wedding ceremonies and stuff like that. With lots of you know. Um, rights and stuff like that. So where does that fit in the Yeah, so so probably the that where you would see it most in West in the West would be in Anglicanism with uh, with with a lot of the the high church liturgy um, and then also in this this the sort of mystical idea of how one becomes right with God. You know, if you if you if you're familiar, and you are familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy, there, there's not the emphasis on this forensic event whereby one is justified at a point in time. Rather, there's this idea of a, a, a gradual growth towards perfection. And in fact, that really is the goal, is, is, is a kind of perfection. And so probably is what you're seeing here I, I mean, you can probably tell me more than I than uh, than I can tell you in some senses. No, it's interesting. Well, that, that, that's what I was thinking too, because a lot of the, especially on the ceremony side and the rites and the rituals yeah. and that, like, you know. Anyways, that, that's what I was thinking. Yes, sir. Uh, can you talk about the uh, where it says Calvin recognized the two operations of the Holy Spirit and illuminating the believer's mind and the significance of the text? Yeah, yeah. We're gonna we'll we'll talk about this in some detail later on. But if I if I can, we'll talk. Let's let's introduce uh, review those three elements. One, there's the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, whereby the believer gets warned. He recognizes the Bible for what it is, and 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 sees it as the voice of God. Okay. The second is illumination. The illumination is that work of the Holy Spirit whereby he doesn't tell us what the Bible means, but rather causes us to submit to what we know it means by means of reading. Okay? So the illuminating, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is, don't think of it as something magical here, uh, but, but rather it's something that God does to you through regeneration so that you welcome what you read, 
so that you submit to what you read and, and, and so that you obey it. Okay, so the natural man doesn't receive the things, doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Neither can he, neither can he grasp them because they're spiritually appraised. Okay? So the idea is not that the unbeliever looks at the Bible and says, oh, it's chicken scratch, it doesn't make any sense to me. Makes him, it, no, he, he recognizes words, he can put words and syntax together and understand exactly what the meaning is, but what he says invariably is that's foolishness. That's stupid. So what God does in regeneration, he illuminate is to illuminate the mind so that rather than you say that's stupid, you actually give the correct appraisal. This is something I need to submit to and embrace and welcome and, and, and ultimately change your life with it. Um, but the, the third thing here is, is this idea, which I, I mentioned first with Zwingli, and, and also mentioned the name of Karl Barth, is the idea that um, when you read the Bible and you, you know, you're, you're reading it with a, with a sort of a, an elevated way, you can have an encounter with God above the text, and God sort of lets you know what it means. And that's what I said is sort of a step too far. Um, okay, I'm going to try to mess up this Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Yes, sir. You mentioned that English Puritanism represented a departure from the high church. Right. Um, and the high church tendencies, uh, including a centralized government and Arminianism. Um, you didn't expand too much on the Arminian. Arminianism, but right. is that to say that they most closely align with the high church? Well, no, the, no, no when I say the Arminianism, I'm, I'm saying the the anti-Calvinism, the, the idea that one can, that, that one has the ability to affect one's own salvation and also uh, the vulnerability to losing salvation, if I can put it that way. That's what I mean by the Arminianism. And so they reject that and embrace what we typically call Calvinism, uh, where uh, where those those things aren't true. You're, you're, once you're saved, you're always saved. You persevere in the faith and that such. And prior to that, I should have said total depravity. There's nothing you can do to reach that divide between you and God. God has to do that by work of regenerating grace. So, yeah. So, yeah, it, it is kind of an interesting thing because Anglicanism was very, 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 very authoritarian. And so the Puritans have a, have a terrible time trying to carve out a niche for themselves. They finally are successful in doing that. And then they basically turn around and do the same thing to the Baptists, right? So they, they, they've carved out their niche Nobody can disagree with this, and the Baptists come along and say, well, 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 well wait about that, that baptism of babies doesn't make sense to us. Sorry, you don't have a forum for lodging, lodging uh, 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 your, your protest to this. Leave. And so they end up doing the same thing to, to the Baptists. So. History repeats itself. <laughs> it does. Okay. Well, good. Well, let's get at least a little bit of a start here on... Uh, the theological sections here. And what we want to start off with is talk about uh, some of the things concerning the personhood 
of the Holy Spirit. So we're, again, we, we mentioned up front, we're going to work through the person and the works of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the person part is going to be our shorter section, but I think it's something that we really need to establish here because if we go awry here, uh, then uh, the rest of it's going to sort of be in shambles. So let's establish here that the Holy Spirit is in fact a person and the third person of the Trinity. He is not a mere power or force or some abstract form of energy, uh, uh, but rather he's a person. In previous classes here, when we talk about doctrine of God and doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we actually went through and defined each one of these functions of personality. Uh, but uh, and we, we have a little bit more of an abbreviated format here. But let's let's at least walk through this. What does it mean to be a person? Okay. What what are the elements of personhood? What is it that distinguishes God, man, and angels from the rest of creation, which we would say is impersonal, maybe organic, maybe living, but not personal? What what is it? I mean, we all, we all say, yeah, I'm not sure what it is. I recognize it, but I don't know what it is. Well, let's see if we can try to define that. In all spiritual beings, there are these capacities uh, that, are, uh, that are evident. And uh, now there's some debate as to what these capacities may be, but I've got nine here on my list. Okay, so we'll walk through these one by one. First is spirituality. Um, obviously, the Holy Spirit is spirit. It almost goes without saying it's his name, right? So he's the, he's the Holy Spirit, so he's possessed of spirituality. But what is meant by this idea of the spirituality of God? Well, when God is described as a spirit, does not mean that he merely is invisible. I sometimes think of, okay, there's a, there's a spirit in the room, you know, and, and so it's some sort of an invisible entity here. Now, fact is, the Holy Spirit is invisible, but the invisibility isn't that which makes him spirit okay so it's not simply an invisible disembodied agent in some sort of platonic sense what it means is that god has an enduring identity apart from a physical body okay and we're persons right because if our body dies so if we die and our body is put into a grave we nonetheless live on right invisibly and in a spiritual form but we persist we, we continue to live. That's what we mean by spirituality. And so the Holy Spirit is spirit and has spirit uh, because he is the spirit of God. Now, when scriptures describe God as spirit, such as in John 4, 24, those who worship him must, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, it, and this means that he is the exemplary spirit or as many commentators describe him, as the pure spirit. In God is the perfect, complete, or harmonious conflation of mind, will, and affections. God is pure spirit. And furthermore, we find in Hebrews 12, uh, 9, that he is the, the first of spirits. So all other spirits, including us, derive our existence and our spirituality, our spirithood, from him. Only beings described as having mind and spirit, are capable of true worship. Okay, so uh, we worship in word and in truth. That is, we worship in word, intellectual content, and in spirit, engaging the immaterial self through the intellect, will, and affections, all working in concert. That's what worship should be. 
That's what we should all aspire to when we worship, for instance, on, on Sunday, particularly in the church service, but elsewhere. It's not just a matter of intellectual content, but also the conflation of the mind, the will, and the affections working in concert in giving praise to God. Okay, so, so when we talk about spirituality, that's what we mean, and it goes without saying almost uh, that the Holy Spirit is spirit in that sense. This distinguishes him, for, for, for instance, from your kitty cat. You might, might love your kitty cat. don't want to say anything bad about kitty cats in here. Uh, nonetheless, when your kitty cat dies, he does not have an enduring existence apart from the body. He won't precede you to heaven. Okay? Sorry if I've got to break that to you. Uh, but, you but, but, but animals are not spirit beings. Furthermore, then, they cannot worship in spirit and truth. Not only can they not grasp the content, but they cannot engage the, the will and the affections in the worship of God. So a cat does not have personhood. You say, well, my cat has a real personality. Okay, but it doesn't mean he has personhood, or she, or whatever it is. Yeah. So spirit synonymous with soul, as far as... Yes, yeah, I, I, I'll say yes for now. Yeah. Right. It's the immaterial part of the person. Second aspect of personhood is life. And I say, in you know, by strict definition, life is potential activity or energy directed by one's own mind. Okay, so that's how one knows one is alive. As a living being, the Holy Spirit is able to consciously do things external to Himself. The Holy Spirit is described here as streams of living water. It's rather a a picturesque way of putting this here, welling up within the believer, spilling out in blessing and service. It's also implied here that the Spirit is the source or fountainhead of life if we follow the stream metaphor. So he is he is the source, the fountainhead of, of physical life. He's also the source and the fountainhead of spiritual life as well, which is why he's called then the Spirit of the living God and gives some... Gives some 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 teeth to the idea that it's a a, a, a a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Why? Because he has, I say here, potential energy or activity that is directed by his mind. Okay, and so it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God who is set against you and directs his energies against you uh, rather than in your interest. So. He is. He has life. He's got intelligence. Okay, Holy Spirit is able to perceive and correlate facts, to reason, to apply knowledge. This is another element of personhood. The Spirit of the Lord is a spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, and the spirit of knowledge. And he's going to rest upon the Messiah figure. Okay, So these elements here identify him as an intellectual being. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, we find in Acts 15, not to burden you with anything beyond these requirements. This is after the uh, Jerusalem Camp Council. And we find here that the, I mean, it sort of gives you the picture of the, the, the Holy Spirit sort of ruminating about how what he's going to do. Uh, perhaps 
takes the metaphor a little bit too far, but the idea is there that he thinks, he reasons, and comes to conclusions and expresses them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.8, he gives gifts of knowledge and wisdom, which sort of implies that he has them. He's the fountainhead of those. And uh, Romans 8, because the Spirit knows the will of God and our desires, he is able to serve as an effective intercessor. So when we pray, he's able to understand what we have to say, synthesize what we have to say, and express it in ways that we are not even able to ourselves. Okay? So he's got superior intellectual capacity, right? You know, I was just thinking that today when I saw uh, Trump having his little his little uh, uh, debate with some uh, some news reporters, and the Ukrainian fellow was sort of in some somewhat broken English trying to give his explanation, and Trump comes along and says, "And this is what he means." <laughs> well, that that's. And, and the idea here is I've got a superior intellect. I know his thoughts. I know his mind, and I can express them to you. Well, the Holy Spirit does that, but does it quite accurately and effectively. Okay? I'll let you decide how Trump did. It's not our point here tonight. <laughs> purpose. Another element of personhood. Purpose is reaction to a future goal which exists only in the mind as though it were already present. We do this every day, right? And we wake up in the morning, what am I going to do today? And we and we ruminate in our minds exactly how it's going to happen. We can go through the steps sometimes, and we plan the day. Again, this is this is unlike again what your kitty cat does. He doesn't he doesn't get up and plan his day. Okay. He simply gets up and I don't know, goes to the litter box and goes to the food bowl and and that's that's his life, you know. Uh, But we have purpose because we are persons, and the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. He purposes. Uh, Romans 15 says here, the Spirit used signs and miracles in order to lead the Gentiles to a place of obedience. Okay, so he has this idea. I I, I want the Gentiles to express faith and obey. How am I going to do it? And he develops a strategy to make it happen. Acts 16.7, the Spirit pursued his purpose in re- redirecting Paul's missionary efforts. Okay, and this is the famous Macedonian call here where Paul has one intention and the Holy Spirit has a different intention and basically arrests uh, Paul in the middle of the night and says, don't go there, go here. And uh, so, again, this, this idea of purpose. I, I, have, I, have, I have a purpose for you and you need to readjust your intentions because I have a purpose, I've got a plan, and I need you to do this instead. Okay, so we, we find here uh, that the Holy Spirit has purpose. Of course, he has action, uh, but what we mean by this, uh, obviously you can say, oh, my kitty cat has actions, but what I mean here is the independent performance of deeds in accordance with one's thinking. So once I've purposed to do something, this is how it is effective. So the Holy Spirit is continually performing an endless list of activities that single him out as a person, such as he speaks in ordinary language. He intercedes for us. He gives commands. He testifies. He guides. He convicts. He creates. He empowers. He prays. He comforts. He reveals. He instructs. Okay, well, these are the kinds of actions that I don't think you can you can attribute, again, to your, your kitty cat to come back to the sport. Poor animal. 
Okay, so these are the kinds of actions that he's engaged in, which identify him as a person. He also has self-consciousness, the ability to objectify oneself and one's own thoughts and know that one has done so. If I can illustrate this, it's the ability to look into a mirror and do something about what you see. Okay, that's self-consciousness. Okay, You're, And uh, hopefully you do this on a routine basis. As a person, mankind can do this, but only incompletely. We can look in the word as in a mirror. Uh, we can we can probe our own thoughts and try and figure out what our own intentions and motives are. But sometimes we actually even fail there, right? And David says in his in his psalm, you know, search me and know my thoughts, try me and know my my motives effectively, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So so he's I mean that's how sort of how it wraps up his psalm. I'm I'm trying to do my best here to do what you expect, but and but I'm not even sure if I'm properly motivated as I do it. You you figure that out, and the Holy Spirit can. Okay, and so the Holy Spirit can more effectively do this even than we can. And we find this uh, uh, expressed, I think, in First Corinthians two eleven, which is a passage on uh, that that deals with. Uh, uh, with uh, inspiration, process of inspiration. Who among men know the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thought of God except the spirit of God. And he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit visits the writers of Scripture and and allow, gives them spiritual thoughts that they are able to express in spiritual words. And so the inspiration of Scripture is a very complex uh, thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. Uh, as 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 part of his function of personality, he also has freedom, freedom, self determination, the ability to make decisions, determinations apart from external compulsions. Now, God, we would say, is the only being, the only person who is wholly free in that there's no one outside of him who can tell him what to do. Um, he can tell himself what he can. I mean, so he is limited by his own nature and character, uh, but he is not bound by any force external to himself. We find this routinely in the scriptures. I don't take counsel from anyone. I do whatever I please. No one can stay my hand or say, what are you doing? Uh, so God is a person in this sense. He's got self-determination in a, in a pure sense. He's restricted only by his own self-imposed limitations. So, for instance, he can't lie, Titus 1-2 says. So in this sense, he's not absolutely free or contra-causally free. He can't just do anything at all. God can only do things within his own nature, character, and purposes. Now, sometimes we cringe a little bit when we say that God can't do something. Uh, but there it is right in the scripture. God can't lie. He can't deny his own nature and his own character. Nonetheless, uh, with, with the exception of those self-imposed restrictions, God is wholly free. And so we find this, in the, uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, when the Holy Spirit is preparing uh, the church. It says here, the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he determines, without any external constraints. He's free. And so he can equip you and uh, apparently does so in a, in, a, in a massive network of providence. He prepares for his church and his churches the, those with the gifts necessary 
uh, for the perpetuation of that church. Affection, by which we mean not a mechanism of reflexes and reactions, which are sometimes called passions, but inclinations or aversions towards an object well, that express themselves in feeling. This is an established function of the Holy Spirit. He loves. He's inclined towards us. He grieves. And in fact, the fruit of the Spirit are all expressed here in these godly affections. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. So he has these in endless supply. Then finally, moral agency is the last element here of personhood. It's a sense of obligation in issues of right and wrong, shared by all persons. And as God, the Holy Spirit, is not only aware of right and wrong, he's actually the arbiter of right and wrong, the determiner, the standard of moral purity, and is thus free from all that is evil. And so he is called the Holy Spirit. Again, right there in the name, he is the Spirit, he is the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of truth. So all of those elements come together to let us know that the Holy Spirit is not just some sort of a force or an abstraction out there, but he's a person and in fact is on par with Jesus Christ and God the Father as persons within the uh, triune God. So that was, uh, we'll, we'll address that uh, as we uh, come to it next week. I wanted to get all the way to uh, Roman numeral 4, but uh, your time's up here, so uh, we'll go ahead and cut off here. It's a little bit unnatural spot, uh, but uh, we'll pick up there. Any questions that you have here? Yeah, I mentioned it. You were you were talking oh, when I said yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you have paid for the book, uh, go ahead and, and, and pick that up. And uh, if you haven't paid for it, go to the resource center. And if you are still lacking in notes, uh, Bill's got those in the back. Okay. We'll see you next week.